happening now. We'd like to join you to the March 8th, 2017 edition of the EdTech Situation Room, welcoming our viewers from across the United States and around the world. That is, if Marta will join us again, as she often does from Tegucigalpa. My name is Wes Fryer. I am, during the day, the Director of Technology for the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City, and I am so glad to be joined by the Yoda of all ed tech, who happens to reside in San Antonio, Texas. I did not tell him I was wearing a suit, so he has popped up his Beautiful TCEA suit picture. But there he is. It's Miguel Gulen. How are you tonight, Miguel? I'm doing great, Wes. I'm so excited to see you dressed up. You know, I, I bet uh, Miss Pryor says she's so happy to see you dressed up. She is. It, that's exactly what she says. She likes me better in a suit, <laughs> and that's why I'm going with it. So, Well, what wife does not like her husband all dressed up and miserable, miserable in the tie? It's like it's just encroaching more on your neck. Do you notice that? Well, uh, actually, I think like, I'm just I'm just getting used to it. So, <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the new normal. So, what what is your day job these days, Miguel? For those that may not know you, well, today I had a, a wonderful day uh, telecommuting to work, and uh, that means I get to work from home. And uh, really, I uh, crank out blog entries and get ready for upcoming webinars and and stuff like that. You could tell it was a really tough day. Um, I, so I, I didn't have to wear a tie today. I was so grateful for that. But uh, the last two days, I've been uh, at South by Southwest uh, EDU, and uh, that has been <laughs> a lot of fun. <laughs> And did you feel like predator or prey at EdTech or at uh, South by Southwest EDU? I I I felt a bit like um, the prey as the, you know, one one of the few teachers in the room in some of the sessions. Did you get that sense at all, or was it? I tried to predator? avoid those sessions. If I found out that a, a partner was uh, presenting and there wasn't really any content, I moved on. But there were some phenomenal sessions. I really enjoyed uh, one on professional development for pre-K teachers. Um, I forgot the name of the, it was Dr. Ann something, really Cunningham. And Dr. Ann Cunningham, she was doing a, a very nice presentation on uh, the whole teacher support model and talking about professional development. And I thought that was really exciting. There was, uh, I think one, I, I had a opportunity to interview four or five people. I walked into this room, it was sort of a ballroom, and uh, they had uh, stations all around. And it was all about STEM and uh, teaching. And I was having a conversation with the VidCode people. Have you heard of VidCode? V-I-D-C-O-D-E? I do not know about them. And just check them out on Twitter, at VidCode. And I'm having this conversation with what seems to be like a 20-year-old or or 18 or 19-year-old. And uh, completely blows my mind. I, I, I think it's maybe a student. And uh, over there to the right is uh, Tamika, her, you know, her professor, and maybe she's just guiding her along. The next thing I know, <laughs> I'm talking to Tamika out in the hall after we've done the Voxer cast and everything, and I find out that Leandra from VidCode is the co-founder of VidCode. That young lady had co-founded this this. I mean, they got bags and T-shirts and everything, and it's un- unbelievable. And I'm thinking, what was I doing at whatever age? You know, I you know probably nothing that productive. It's just amazing um, chatting with them. I also got to catch some uh, robots with. Uh, gosh, I forgot the name of it. It's Robo something. But if you check my Twitter back, uh, ch- you know, ch- check Twitter, you'll see all of that. But uh, it is just amazing chatting with all these folks. I ran into a company from Brazil and I uh, can't say the the uh, Portuguese uh, title of the business but it was from kid to kid which basically was they were going into schools and they've created a web platform for um kids to record or narrate narrated slideshows and things like that and do animations. It was just per- really amazing to to hear some of that. Awesome. So those were really some of the big takeaways over um there's a few more. There's some great keynote addresses, but I can't really capture those. I haven't processed them as a blog yet. Well, well Peggy, George is in our chat room, and Miguel, I, I put the link to the uh, public chat. So we have now somewhat figured out 
when you view the YouTube page for the EdTech SR live stream, um, there's a chat on the side and there's a pop-out link. So I've put the pop-out link there for you in our private Hangout chat. And so if you want to follow along with that, <clears throat> what I've started to do is have my Hangout kind of in the you know left three-fourths of the screen and then kind of a thin bar of the pop-out chat. So Peggy see that she did get to see the virtual recording of the keynote, of one of the keynotes for, or maybe it was the keynote for South by Southwest. So that's pretty cool. I'm glad to hear that that, that was energizing. So... We have three live viewers tonight, so we do want to let you know that you can check out all the links that we are going to be talking about, and I'm sure some that we will not because we usually put more in there on our website, which is edtechsr.com slash links. You can follow us on Twitter, as you likely have, especially if you're tuning in to us live. Um, and we are actually in a bit of an altered, a, uh, altered schedule, so it's nice to be to be early, normally we start at 9 p.m. Central, um, but as as we all know, Miguel has got to get to bed early, and so it actually works out good for me uh, with, with our carpool duties. But we are starting at 8 p.m. Central tonight, and next week we will be off. And then I'm excited to say that on the 23rd, um, a... Uh, Another guest will be joining, and it will be Jen Carey, who is teacher Jen Carey, amazing Florida educator. And then at the end of the month, the seedlings are going to be back, Alice Barr and Cheryl Oaks. And so that is pretty exciting as well. Yeah, we're going to do two hours. Right. <laughs> Actually, I'm sure that we, we probably could do that. But Miguel, as our guest, and, and for those that don't know, we, we take articles, we talk about them, some of which we've read. And we're fortunate that no matter what the topic or the article, Miguel Gulen will have incredible pearls of wisdom that he, what is that? I can't, I can't see. Again. You can't read it. The, uh, I, I oh. just have to, the, the, this is the segment where I share a book that I'm reading, right? Okay, sure. Yeah, go for it. We yeah. are flexible here on EdTech SR. That's right. Uh, it's, our, 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 Jason's not here, so right? So it's okay. So uh, I'm reading a book, uh, uh, Digital Media in Today's Classrooms. Really fantastic book uh, Don, by Dr. Don Wilson, Dr. Katie Alanese, and Dr. I don't think he's a doctor. Joshua Sikora. He might be a doctor. I don't know. But we'll, we'll just give him the benefit of the doubt and say doctor. So isn't that uh, it's a really uh, interesting book. It has lots of activities about and it talks about using digital media. What's the year on that? Is that a is it new? It's it's brand new. It's brand new. Let's see. Oh gosh, I, I want to say it's like two thousand yeah two thousand seventeen. There it goes. Really close. To okay. So, anyways, um, for those of you listening on audio, you're just missing the amazing visuals that Miguel's providing. So, yes, yeah, it's, the book. it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So, this is a book I'm reading. What would you say that book is adding to your your repertoire of knowledge and your toolkit as EdTech Yoda of certainly the Midwest? I have quoted this book in every presentation I've done since I I got to chapter six and then um, set it down for a moment. And uh, I think the, the one that jumps out at me is that kids process media 60,000 times faster than just text. Hmm. I wonder where the, what's the source is on that. 600, well, yeah, she's got the research in here. So okay. it's, it, but you it's know, also Bernie got lots of other uh, stuff. QR codes. Bernie Dodge yeah. called me out uh, for repeating, and I will not say who I'd heard the speaker, you know, talk about, but saying, saying the number of, of times, it wasn't Prinsky, but it was, <laughs> it was a statistic of how much faster the eye processes than the ear. And evidently that, you know, that particular statistic was, was not accurate, but you can talk about neurons. So anyway, it caused me to shift gears. So yes, Bernie Dodge, you've continued to influence me. I'm questioning, making sure that, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to put our that's, that's Bernie that's for good. you. He's, it is. He actually, actually cites the research in here. So I, um, I, if you check my blog at www.mgulen.org and just do a quick search on uh, digital media, uh, you don't have to wade through advertising or book sales or things like that that you might encounter on other popular websites because um, we're moving at the speed of mediocrity. <laughs> Old joke. <laughs> but Peggy hasn't heard it, I bet. Let me check see. Peggy, have you heard that joke already? Well, all right. So Miguel has jumped in with a little book share. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to take us to an article about iBooks. Uh, actually, there were two different books uh, or two different articles about iBooks, which weren't in the last week. But I 
pardon me. I'm trying to think about where I, where I found these. I think, well, as often happens with Twitter, you are, you know, find a link, see, check out what that other person is reading. Oh, I know where this came from. Um, there's a wonderful podcast called The Committed Show, which is a weekly tech podcast. And they were talking about um, this tidbook, tidbits article from February 18th called The State of iBooks in Early 2017. And what the author is basically doing in that article is 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 contrasting from a year previous when there were so many different issues with iBooks in terms of synchronizing especially when you had third party content and overall he says you know iBooks is not the the tool that we deserve as Mac users and it it's just it has gotten better but really not much better and it's incrementally really blah but the even better article which was referenced in the tidbits article this is kind of how the rabbit hole of reading leads right is by dim sum thinking from february 7th and this is called i wish apple loved books and wow this this just hits it on the head he talks about how in apple um you know developer conferences and events and things you know we'll see what they really have the passion and focus for you know certainly music the apple watch uh, but he says, you know, if they just Apple just doesn't get it when it comes to, to pedagogy and books and school and and even publishing and writing. Um, he talks about publishing on a platform called Gum Road, G-U-M Road, and how wonderfully responsive that is. And just and, and I think both I think maybe it was a tidbits article. You know, Kindle is awesome for highlighting text and being able to have a Web page where you can read your text. And anyway, I would really commend both of these articles because I think they hit the nail on the head. And I, I find my, I have gone back, I've, I really have, have gone whole hog for uh, books on the Kindle and read those on my iPad. Sell out. But, but yeah, but I'm, there is a, we're, our Sunday school class, we're, we're reading a book that wasn't available in the new version on Amazon for some reason. And so I am actually reading on iBooks and you can share. But anyway, I wanted to go there. Where, where are you, Miguel, with your electronic consumption of books? And do you have any opinions about where Apple stands with respect to Absolutely. Do I have opinions. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I read that same article. I noticed that you were i-reading it. And, um, of course, I've been just interested in uh, – in that platform. I remember how excited I was when uh, iBooks author came out and I was expecting that this was going to be just a phenomenal platform. I'd be able to create incredible things. And you know, everything that author said in that article was spot on. And of course they actually wrote a book. I, I started to write, I think I maybe got through chapter one and then, wow, this is too much work. I can't do it. Forget it. It's longer than an article. And, uh, but it's like, my gosh, if you, you can't, Published to EPUB. Give me a break. You really are you so afraid of uh you know it's there there Apple is the definition of vendor lock-in. And they make great products, but every time that I want to go look at or use one of their their signature products, it's like really are you trying to lock people in? You are why should I waste money, time, and effort? And I was checking out Gumroad as a result of that article, and you could tell these people bend over backwards trying to make things easy and and make it easy to share and sell your stuff. So definitely I would not use this. But you know the question that I had that I was left with at the end of that article is what is that what was that person using to create those ebooks? Uh I I would love to to have a great easy to use uh cross-platform tool to create ebooks, you know. EPUBs and all of that. I don't know if there is one. Tell me. Yes. Tell yes. me a great one. Well, uh, I may have to. I may have to Google the answer because I'm not. Oh, I'm. I'm about to actually take a book that I have basically written and put online with a WordPress tool, and I'm about to download it and put it into um, this program, which I have not opened in a while, and I'm going to have to. Um, I'm going to have to. It, <laughs> Wait, sad? what program is that? Southbound I don't range. know. Well, the point that what did he what did they call? He had a, a word for meaning dead software for iBooks author in terms of the fact that it just hasn't been updated and it's and it's stagnant and stale. Um, I don't remember what he called it, but anyway, but but that was one of the the good points of that article as well because I think that we need to embrace platforms that allow us to publish on multiple channels. Um, they made the point that if iBooks author had allowed you to publish to Kindle, you know, people might have flocked to it because if you could do EPUB as well as Kindle, because 
those are really the three platforms that are, are predominant. I mean, Kindle's, I think, the most important one, but ebook, uh, ePub as the, um, what? Not scrollable text, but what are we, what, yeah. what, what was it called when you're, when you have the zoomable text or whatever? Um, reflowable text, you know, just the flexibility of the EPUB and the cross platform, uh, format or whatever is, is key. So I'm, I'm going to be checking out Gumroad and I definitely think that it's, um, you know, Apple can't be everything to everybody, right? They're a really big company. One of the other articles we may talk about is, is talking about market share and kind of how that's hap- you know, changed over time for Apple. But, uh, um, do you find yourself reading more electronically, Miguel, than you do paper? And have you fa- I've had the experience recently, I'm getting old, of, you know, of doing this and, you know, having trouble focusing when I'm, when I've got, um, printed books. So I've just been longing for that option to increase the text size, which I guess shows my age. But where, where are you with your e-reading and e-consumption? I do probably 95% of my, uh, reading on, uh, a Kindle. And, uh, or on my iPhone and, uh, print books like digital media in the classroom. I'm, I'm not getting a commission or anything. I'm just, just sort of sharing a good book. Uh, those are review books. So most of the print books that I have now are, are review books that people have sent me and they want me to review it. I wish they would just send me a, a non-DRM EPUB or Mobi, Mobi formatted book. Which is not a big deal because you can convert it with Calibre or something. But, uh, I can't tell you how much I read. If I were to pull up on my, uh, iPhone all my reading, it would just blow your mind. There, I know so you many simply zombies. Speak, you simply speak, Miguel, and it blows our mind. So yes, that would doubly do it. <laughs> I'm double checking this chat to make sure that you're being serious about that, Peggy. You, can you fact check Wes, please? And, uh, yeah, it, it is just, uh, it's just incredible. I got pages and pages of books and not one of them. Well, maybe two are documentaries, you know, but, uh, well, I have found the software. It is Scrivener. So to oh, yeah. tell a short little history, you know, my first foray into book publishing was 2011 with playing with media an extremely out of date publication, which I hope here in the next year to be updating. But Scrivener was the software I found. It's now available actually for iOS and there's a synchronization, I think, between the the um the you know regular laptop desktop software version but it is a very sophisticated program has some very innovative ways that you can organize your notes and organize your thoughts but one of the best things about it is it has a very good you know export to epub export to kindle and you know the formatting and stuff like that is is really powerful it's it's high end and i probably just scratched the surface when i used it originally um but um Full disclosure, you know, with an upcoming spring break trip uh, and some hours in the car that we're going to spend, I am planning to uh, grab this this book that I've been writing on a web page, basically, and throw it into Scrivener, do some edits, uh, hopefully make QR codes, because that's something else that I'd say in the whole book publishing genre. I think you were just opening the, the book you were mentioning, Miguel, and showing the QR codes. I think, you know, shortened links and QR codes are the way to go, because even if you'd publish that iBooks enhanced version, it's going to balloon into a really large file that's going to be difficult to download. And it's just more flexible to give people shortened links and then help educate them about QR codes so they can scan it on their phone or whatever. So what are you showing there? Just all my books. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, I know Peggy wanted to see that. The um, <laughs> No, I agree. And it uh, looks like Scrivener's on, on for sale for 40 bucks. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, it's, trial. it's definitely worth checking out. Chris Miller, welcome, uh, for a live audience member here from Austin, Texas. He says in the chat that his wife does a ton of ghostwriting and authors typically have her use Gasp Word. Yes, wow. that is still the platform. But, um, if you, if you have the choice and, and actually Scrivener can export to Word as well, but it's, uh, I, I have participated for the last couple of years, and I think I am now sort of out of this, but a local writer's conference called Write Well, Sell Well. And there's been some great things that I've been exposed to through that. And it definitely is affirmed that many serious writers, both fiction and nonfiction, you know, love Scrivener. It's it's a very um, – it's a, it's a niche software, so it's not something you're going to go to school and say, hey, everyone needs to learn Scrivener. But if you know any students and just others interested in writing and authorship, it's definitely worth checking out. And it's being updated, right? Because just like we talked about iBooks Author, 
you know, if it's not being updated, if it's not being refreshed, then, you know, its utility is probably limited. So, hey, and Jamie Camp is here as well. Look at this, Miguel. You have wow. just brought out the audience. They heard Miguel Gulen is here, and they are ready to hear your wisdom. So That's not what it is, Wes. What it, it is, is is that you're wearing a tie. That's, no, I'm I, here every week, Miguel. I've never it's worn you. a tie before, and people wanted to see what you look like. And, yeah. and uh, yeah. you can't you get out wear of a tie thing. to keynotes anymore? I mean, I, are you, are you, are you hey. wearing a a, a nice, comfortable uh, T-shirt and, a, and jacket. Now. Actually, yeah, the the suit has kind of become my normal. But I haven't done a keynote in a while. I think I may go to Vietnam though in August, and wow. that will be cool. But it won't. It, it may not be a keynote. And if it's the summer in Vietnam, I don't think I'm going to wear a, a coat and a tie. But who knows? I don't know what the. Yeah, there's Miguel back in his tie. Okay, Miguel, please take us to an article of your choice. And give us the ed tech spin on it because that's usually what we'll what we'll do is kind of look at some tech news but have it through an educational lens. So we're I know we didn't get them in here, but when I shared the WikiLeaks um, release of the hacking documents, there were several kind of response articles that you had. But wherever you would like to take us, what I'm supposed to take them somewhere? Well, you don't have to. I mean, do you want me to do you want me to talk about that one and then you comment on it? You don't well, which which are okay? So give it to me again, because all I, right, I, I'll I'll do the intro and then you can yeah. So uh, this is from New York Times, March seventh, two thousand seventeen. WikiLeaks releases trove of alleged CIA hacking documents, and I actually I think I probably sent this to you before. Oh yeah, I, I even asked you Last if you were going to come on the show. Yeah, uh, or maybe it was after, but um, for you all to know, by the way, and we'll put this link in the show notes. Miguel and I co um what would you say uh co-curate a wonderful flipboard magazine i think actually we're in, in on two of them one about privacy and one that's about surveillance and um digital security one's digital security which i interpret and perhaps incorrectly and we we've never hashed this out west but one's on digital security and then the other one is on surveillance and how yeah um the right. current administration is and past administrations are we're always trying are always trying to get into access to our stuff. That's right. And and you know there is overlap uh, between them. And and we've talked on the show a lot about surveillance and that you know had inspired me this last November to do this TEDx talk on on uh sur- what is it uh digital citizenship in the surveillance state. So this New York Times article talks about the release by WikiLeaks of what is supposedly the the largest release of CIA documents ever. And among other things, it talks about, I think it's just for Android, how they say they are able to intercept, even when you're using uh, Telegram, uh, WhatsApp, um, some of these secure secure messaging apps, they're able to capture that information before it's encrypted. And the thing that is shocking to me, and I, I don't know if we had this one last week, But if you've had a Samsung smart television, you know, and I've wondered about this and people are wondering about it with smart assistants. Yes, according to this, the CIA and other intelligence agencies, it was a a cooperative effort with the British intelligence, they say, uh, managed to get that to be a bug. And so they could go ahead and capture conversations. They said that in like, I think 2013 or 14, Samsung did in the small print of the television say, be aware that your conversations, if you use voice recognition, can be recorded and shared with third parties. Of course, not saying those third parties may be, you know, surveillance agencies. But uh, Miguel, your response to this yesterday or today was, "Hey, don't don't give up on these secure messaging apps." So, what uh, what do you think? And, yeah. And how, so, and what does this have to do with schools? I mean, should people in in education be concerned about this at all? Well, I th- I think we need to be aware of how. I mean, it's part of digital citizenship. So, I mean, if you don't know how, and I I watched your talk, Wes, and and uh, I I didn't fall asleep once. It it was that engaging, and I really want to encourage our listening audience to go listen to Wes, and uh, because I mean, it, you know what was really funny was that. People don't see this as relevant to education. They they see it as like uh, it's not that important. It's not that big of a deal. But you know, it really goes to the heart of freedom, liberty uh, in America. Human human, I mean, human rights, right? Human well, rights, not just privacy, but human rights. An American, an American construction, right? So, I I agree. I, I think it's it's something. It's the United Nations, right? The UN has ratified the Universal Declaration. Who did it first? The U.S. Well, the United well, States. Oh, no, it's fine. You're right. Yeah. So it's like, uh, you know, 
and and it's we're we're almost throwing we're throwing that away. We're we're getting rid of that if um because of all the, it, it, it's just very disturbing. And, and uh, but I guess what's really frightening is that you know just like you mentioned Telegram, WhatsApp, uh, Signal, those have been fairly reliable end-to-end encryption tools. Telegram has been in use, of course, by ISIS. Let me say that a few more times in case the NSA wants to catch on. ISIS oh, and, and other terrorists. Um, but the truth is anybody should be able to have a, a private conversation and uh, not others shouldn't be able to listen in on it. It's terrible that these tools are being put to such uh, bad purpose, but uh, we really, <laughs> you know, as an American, we should, as Americans, we should be able to have encrypted conversations and nobody should be able to find out about those. And uh, I, I realize that opinion may not be popular, but uh, so we have to just, we, we have to protect ourselves against sur- surveillance. And, People in schools need to learn how to encrypt their data, even if we don't care that the government is is listening in or or whatever. You still need to be able to encrypt data so that it's protected. And if if these tools are so widely discredited, or people keeps you know the government's yeah we crack that we um, no one's it's going to get very uh, people will just go even further underground. You know what? Maybe we should get couriers to carry this stuff around. I, I can hire a personal courier to carry this message to you, Wes. What do you think about that idea? Well, I think that one of the most important things, I don't think we need to go couriers or carrier pigeon, but, you know, uh, Peggy has expressed, and I'm sure other people have wondered this too, like, do I just give up? You know, is it's just overwhelming, and it seems like there's nothing I can do, but there are things we can do. And in education, uh, we're doing a lot of work on digital citizenship and are on the cusp of uh, sharing a strategic plan for the next five years about digital citizenship <clears throat> and uh, have been putting together, actually, in the last few days, some... Um, Venn diagrams to show the overlap in goals with digital citizenship. And, and I guess two places I see this surveillance conversation fitting in is in the privacy context, right? Because we need to decide what we're going to share, what we're comfortable sharing. And we need to be aware of how the dots are connected, right? By corporations as well as by, you know, com- by countries in terms of their, of their, um, you know, security apparatus, their, their law enforcement and their military. But the other place is really an advocacy. And one of the responses to this uh, Venn diagram of digital citizenship goals um, pointed out that student voice and empowerment of students is an important part of citizenship. You know, citizenship involves not just rights that we exercise, but responsibilities for things that we do, defending the rights that we have in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights. These, we hear people say this, and we might think it's quaint, but it, they're, it's not free, right? It doesn't come without cost, and it doesn't come without work. And so we are definitely living in an era where the tools of technology put unprecedented power in the hands of authorities. And while we saw, like in the Arab Spring a few years ago, right, these Arab countries being concerned about Twitter and social media and U.S. companies have, you know, leapt and others have leapt up Israeli, um, you know, to pr- provide uh, abilities for, for firewalls and for blocking and, f- and for tracking. Um, I think that we need to be letting, you know, students know about tools like Tor. I think we need to to definitely tell people that, you know, you might go on a watch list depending upon things that you search for and things that you do online and and digital footprint, right? We think about perhaps in digital citizenship more the explicit public footprint of what did you, you know, put on your public Facebook page, Instagram page, YouTube channel. But what about the footprints you're leaving when you are searching online? You know, how many people know about DuckDuckGo? I think that's what it's called, right, for for private searches. Um, How many people realize, you know, even, even with incognito mode, your browser is fingerprinted now. And so the extensions that you have installed, the kind of video card you have in your computer, um, and, and, and of course, number one, IP address wise, the Mac address, the MAC, that's the machine address. It's not Apple or, or, or PC, but the, the machine ID code that is part of the IP address, um, packet, you know, that is being sent every time you're communicating. 
all of these things are creating a digital footprint. And I shared with our um, upper school, high school computer teacher this week an article that it's um, we shared it a few weeks ago. It's about the, it's like the truth behind a Facebook quiz or something. And it's the article that talks about Cambridge Analytics, which is this company that worked for the anti in the Brexit European Union vote. You know, they've they worked for the the side that that got it defeated in the UK. So the UK left the EU. They only work for conservative groups and they work for the Cruz campaign in the primary and they work for the Trump campaign. And they have something like 3000 data points about over 200 or 300 million Americans. And they can really put together a lot of pieces. So we do not have laws in the United States currently allowing us to ask what information do you have about us? And we also can't ask, Hey, stop using that. Or I want to have control over the use of that. So, um, we're seeing some other countries, frankly, take more leadership in, in Europe, um, about some of those issues. And so I think there's, I haven't resolved exactly what that needs to be. And that's kind of what that TEDx talk was trying to get at. But I think there's advocacy that we need to be doing here, not just for what are you going to share on Facebook, but also what, how are you going to advocate for these rights and, and how are you going to be, you know, taking a stand for some of these things that if, if people don't take a stand, they're just going to be, you know, further eroded. You know, Wes, um, I shared a, a quote in the, in the chat, um, but uh, as we put more tech or as we do more of this, especially with our younger learners, um, you know, this whole idea of, and I quote, tracking and monitoring students in their development may condition them to accept constant monitoring and tracking of their whereabouts and behaviors. And this is a real issue for us in schools because, you know, I don't know if you all remember the RFID chips and all of, all, all those ideas, but, you know, we've got video cameras everywhere in our schools. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen valid uses of video cameras we are really teaching our kids that they are always under the microscope and that it's okay for them to be under the microscope. Is it any surprise that they're not going to exhibit the same values as, you know, I wonder if we asked Thomas Paine, would you want to be watched uh, as you're walking down the road uh, when you're in school, uh, all of that, or would you be willing to, to stand up and say, no, this is, this is just wrong. We shouldn't be under constant uh, monitoring. And then uh, all of our, uh, communications. You know, one of the reasons that that uh, kids have their own mobile devices, mobile hotspots, everything else, is because they've completely circumvented uh, school district networks. If you're a, a technology officer for a school district, you've lost control of your network. You no longer, or really, you've lost control of the people that are are there. You're, you're no longer the only game in town. And I think it's wonderful that they've bypassed that. So we need to just accept that. And instead of trying to over-control and, uh, and overwatch all of these people, uh, our kids, uh, we need to start having the real conversations and building the community. And you can't have that unless you've got the uh, digital citizenship. You know, have you found, heard about uh, restorative justice? It's well, uh, not. Yeah, I, I had not run into it um, until probably about two years ago. And it was a high school principal that introduced us to, to it. And um, restorative justice, you know, when someone does something wrong, there's this immediate let's punish them, let's, you know, bring put the hammer down and, and that's it, it's over. Um, but restorative justice takes a different approach, and it's been in use in several uh, middle schools and high schools, at least in the San Antonio, Texas area. And uh, they actually did a study, and I think there's actually a Twitter chat. It's run by uh, Victor Small um, out of California, and uh, they're doing they do a restorative justice uh, chat. But it is a the idea that we're going to bring kids together when something bad happens uh, and talk it through. And uh, it's been showing positive effects. I, I'm not prepared to speak on it tonight, but I do want to, if you haven't heard about it, I, I would definitely encourage you to ch uh, check into it. I just worry that we're conditioning our kids to be constantly tracked and monitored. And uh, that's, that's going to push them even further away. I mean, 
Uh, normal is shifting, right? And so we have to help shape that normal and not just accept, ah, it's the new normal. I have no privacy rights because that is what you hear a lot of people kind of saying, well, I'm not a terrorist and I'm not a criminal. I'm not doing anything wrong. Why should I care? And of course, that assumes benevolent authorities. And it also misunderstands freedom of expression and especially social change and the ways in which all social change movements have started on the fringe or outside of the law. Think slavery, think women's suffrage, think the civil rights movement, you know. And of course, there was all kinds of surveillance and things that were going on, you know, in the 1960s during the civil rights movement. And, and many of those things have come to light through declassification. Um, you think about what, what that would look like now with the tools that the Trump administration, you know, has in their hands. And, and it's perhaps even more frightening. So... I'll check out restorative justice. And if you want to drop a, a link into the show notes, Miguel, we can, we can add that I'll, as well. I'll definitely drop it in. Uh, you know, Jamie uh, makes a, a point that, uh, everybody wants the librarian or instructional specialist to be in charge of digital behavior and it's overwhelming. And I, I agree. I, I mean, this really needs to be a community effort. Um, and I think this may actually go to how our schools are structured. You know, you have everybody in their own little box, and uh, you don't come out of that box except at prescribed times. Uh, but we, we really need to shift how we organize our time and uh, in schools, and uh, it, it needs to take on more of a, of a community approach. That means that Everybody has to be up to speed on, on these ideas. It can't just be the instructional uh, media specialist or the teacher librarian or, or whatever the latest uh, title is for the person who, who uh, is curating knowledge in the, in the library uh, or in that room or the instructional technology person. And shout out to Susan Bearden, right? Her book is about a community approach to digital citizenship. It's a, it's a quick read. Uh, we are using it at our school on our digital citizenship team. And we're looking at, at using that with our entire community. And the, I, another idea that's resonated with me in the last couple of weeks as we've been talking about this is we have a little more agreement about what digital citizenship is, but not a lot about how we effectively get students to appropriate it and, and demonstrate it. And my analogy is sports, right? You never learn to play a sport by having someone read you the rules. If I tell you how to play football or basketball, I do not make you into a football or basketball player. I have simply informed you about rules. And so in the same way that we would you know, provide students with chances to practice and to scrimmage and to actually go to games and that we're going to coach them and we're going to give them feedback and they're going to give each other feedback, right? That dynamic needs to be happening with digital citizenship. And so I... I'm energized and excited about the opportunity that we, that I think we have at our school. And of course, everyone has this chance, uh, right? It depends on your, on your leadership, but to focus on digital citizenship, not just within a narrow, you know, ethics and, and character development, right and wrong. Here's the rules, not just in a, let's deliver you these stories of people who have gone afoul of, you know, the NCAA because, oh, they did this video or they put this picture online. We need to be integrating this into the daily activities of students, the ways that we're publishing and sharing media, that we're interacting with others, uh, the ways that we're shaping our digital footprint, and then the ways we're talking to parents about strategies for parenting, right? Because, gosh, it's a rapidly moving target. And um, it's, you know, it's not just about Internet safety. It is about that. But then, you know, it's about privacy and all these other things. So I'll put a link into the show notes for this little graphic. Um, and the other thing that came to my mind, Miguel, when you talked about restorative justice was this idea that in school, it's one of the few places where we give up our civil rights uh, voluntarily. Well, students don't necessarily. And Brad Ovnell Carter, um, I was on a Google Hangout with him for the K-12 online conference back in January 20th about design thinking, and he was talking about that. And so, you know, what kinds of things we teach students, what kinds of things we make normal, um, you know, we've, we, we are, I really have been having it great against me as I've run into some people virtually on Twitter and other places who, you know, just want to rant about how schools haven't changed at all. And they're just stuck in the, you know, 18th century. And there are things, of course, that are very similar to our old schools, but there's many things that are that are different. And I think that um, 
there's a lot of things we could rethink and rethinking discipline and, and even rethinking the mandatory way in which we are forcing everyone to, you know, kind of get on the conveyor belt and, and move down the road. Those are all good things to be rethinking. Although, you know, Wes, I'd like to circle back and, and uh, just talk a little bit about, you mentioned uh, Samsung and uh, I, I think about how many TVs are being purchased for schools and uh, how easy it would be for for people. You know, uh, uh, one of the articles that I was reading is that you can go in and you just have to know where to go. So I, I was looking at, uh, and re- this really ties into the Internet of Things, and uh, I was, in case, if you check my Twitter feed from this morning, you'll notice that I was doing some heavy reading on uh Internet of Things and security, but all of these TVs are out there. And you shared one uh, one article about Vizio uh, tracking and selling our TV viewing habits without consent. How long before people are are selling our uh, access to our uh, hacked uh, devices in our homes? And uh, I mean, we won't even know. And I well, think I, about those TVs are. in kids' rooms. I might, you know. I think of some of the uh, visited some friend's house and then, you know, I get a tour of the house and they say, Oh, look, and they've got this beautiful TV that's 50 something inches or whatever in, in their child's room covering one wall. And sure enough, it, it is one of those smart TVs because they ha- those are the TVs that hook up to all the different game consoles and everything else and pull Netflix and uh, Amazon uh, prime video and everything. And, you know, all this is out there, and uh, you just, the quote was, you just have to know where to go on the Internet to find how to hack into these uh, TVs and access them. And they're there. They're just, it's just waiting for the person who knows how to do it. And then what about these TVs in schools? Uh, are we locking them down? What are schools actually even doing about Internet of Things and all those devices that are finding there? You know, I there's like 6 billion devices out there right now and there's going to be 50 billion by 2020. So how many are, what are K-12, what's K-12 or K-16 doing? So Have you heard anything? Two, two points on that. Uh, Chris Miller in our chat room had, had said a little earlier tonight, you know, we not have to not only be alert for legislation about privacy, but corporate EULAs, the, uh, the use, user uh, agreements uh, we can, he says we can refuse to allow internet filtering into law and then unwittingly accept that practice every time we sign a EULA. And, and, you know, that's something that's been talked about in the privacy paradox by the, um, oh gosh, the podcast, um, note to self. Are you a note to self listener, Miguel? Are you familiar no, with that? Oh, I heard oh, okay. So put that on your list. Note to self. It's a, it's about a, out of WNYC studios, uh, I think out of New York, uh, NPR. Uh, Manoush Samarodi is the host. They just did a whole series called The Privacy Paradox. But thinking about, you know, what's become normalized for these user agreements and what we, you know, 47 pages or whatever for iTunes, just just crazy. Um, and to your point about, you know, hacking, here's my book shout out, Spam Nation by Brian Krebs, okay? Krebs, if you Google right now, Krebs on security, Brian Krebs is one of the foremost security researchers I actually had a targeted hack by what I think are Russian hackers on my Speed of Creativity blog, which I haven't posted about yet. I'm still in the process of securing all of my WordPress sites that are on my site as a as a result of this and changing up what's going on. I think the post that I did about this and the tweets that I had may have had something to do with it. But your your point, Miguel, is how often until our devices, whether they're TVs in our classrooms or TVs in our kids' rooms or whatever, you know, are for sale, the hacked credentials to get into those for sale. I think it's already happening because Brian Krebs was the target of the Mirai botnet attack that happened a few months ago, which was the largest and most, you know, size-wise in terms of, of – uh, you know, gigabits per second, terabits per second, or whatever the, the you know, the, the method is. Finally, Google had to pick them up. Uh, Akamai, if you're familiar with content uh, distribution platforms, is a, is a huge, you know, uh, CDN, con- content um, distribution network. And they dropped him, and it was Google that, that picked him up on the same network where, you know, they will protect journalists and, and others in persecuted countries who, you know, lose their ability to to publish because they're, they're being attacked. So 
I, the Mirai botnet is now that, that Mirai is for sale and it is an internet of things sort of script kitty, I guess, code that you can get. And it's taking advantage of webcams and, uh, you know, light bulbs and TVs or whatever, you know, whatever kinds of things now are, are in our home. So the, the internet of things, among other things, especially for early adapters and, and for think for companies that have, are not paying attention closely to security, you know, means a very hackable house. And that's what, you know, this new WikiLeaks vault seven points out is that, you know, you get this new smart TV with this microphone. Hey, you know, you're, you're talking to the intelligence community as well as potentially to corporations and other hackers. And let's face it, folks, if the CIA and, and NSA and all these groups can be hacked and I'm going to bet that the Russians are behind this, right? I think the Russians were, what we've read were behind the hacks of the of the Democratic committee and and I guess the Republicans although they didn't release that stuff we won't go down that rabbit hole entirely but you know these folks can be hacked any of us can be hacked so that that really should be something that we think about in all this and I'm personally Miguel I don't know about you but I have I'm not an early adapter of internet of things in my home I don't have a smart lock on our front door uh, I'm really wary of it because I think it's early days, except hackers are not in early days. Hackers are very advanced and people can download these kinds of tools. And we heard, what was that called? War driving when you go around to try to find open oh, yeah. you know, um, Wi-Fi's that are being in your neighborhood. And now it's not just going to be that. It's going to be, hey, whose who's house can I hack into? I have a friend here in Oklahoma City. He lives just you know uh, a couple blocks away. And somebody used some kind of scanner to open up his garage door. Well, that wasn't an Internet of Things like smartphone device, but these kinds of technologies that let you electronically unlock, it's we're we're not in a good place in terms of security for the devices that we put in our home. And while a light bulb or a little switch that turns something on may not seem like a big deal, you know, a webcam, something that records audio. Uh, the, I mean, think about all your conversations being recorded and people who you don't want to have access, having access to all of them. Uh, I think that's a rather forbidding prospect. It, it is the, um, I, you reminded me about the uh, garage door. It's called, uh, what is it? The roll jam device. And you can use that to, uh, unlock, uh, cars, people's cars, as well as garage, your garage. And, uh, you know, my neighbor next door always asked me, how come you don't have an, uh, electronic, uh, garage? Well, I grew up with one. It, yes, it's wonderfully convenient and great. I hate getting out in the rain to open my, my garage door, but, at least I don't have to worry about somebody driving by and the next thing I know my garage door is open because they've pushed the button and it just happens to be the same code or, and then I can't imagine doing, putting that on my door, my front door, back door, all of that is just too crazy. But, um, and then imagine the folks that, how many of our people listening are using, uh, what is it, Alexa and, uh, all of those technologies? Where you can just ask a question and yeah. you'll, you'll get answers. You know, those AI kind of things. It's like, you know, let's throw those out. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be more excited as we're able to write algorithms that control those things, right? And we've talked about this on the show that it's a little more parlor tricks at this point and it's simple kinds of things like what's the weather. And, you know, um, Ben Wilkoff a few weeks ago shared a story about a friend of his who is able to get a custom list from his Google assistant of the local microbrews that are now available within a 20 mile radius of his house. And he's done some custom scripting to create that. And obviously we're not going to be doing that in a K 12 school, there'll be other contexts, but this idea of being able to, you know, use algorithms and, and write code, um, I think is, is the point at which those tools are, I mean, AI, imagine this. Okay. Let, let's get our crystal ball out here. I think we can say with confidence that within our lifetimes, if, if we all get to get to live to a, a reasonable age, you know, in the next, um, you know, 20 to 30 years, we're going to have extremely powerful AI that is not just going to be available to a small group and, and just corporations. What Elon Musk and others are doing with the open AI initiative is they're saying the danger is that if you only have a few limited elites that have access to AI, we need to crowdsource this and democratize this and allow many people to have access to that. Wow. What does the world look like? What, what does your job look like? What is, you know, 
what do job prospects look like for individuals when, when any of us could have access to a really powerful AI that we could bring to bear on different problems and, you know, challenges. Um, you know, obviously there's evil that can be done with that, but there's a lot of good too. Yeah, there's been some great books that have sort of explored this. And, uh, you know, this becomes the next uh, arms race. Uh, who's going to have the more powerful AI uh, and uh, and then control the, mil- the the system? So I, I think we're, we're coming up on 9 o'clock. So were you going to share Geek of the Week? Uh, well, you know what? We started just a few minutes late. late. Let, me, let me take us to one other. Well, I'm going to do two other articles quickly. And, yeah, then we'll do, we'll do Geeks of the Week. Um, I want to mention the DNA article. This was ZDNet on March 6th. DNA storage landmark, now it's 215 petabytes per gram or over 100 million movies. And what we're talking about here is using biological DNA as a storage mechanism for information. And I think this is absolutely fascinating. Um, I did not, I mentioned it in last week's show, and I don't think I put it in the show notes. I list Radio Lab a couple years ago did a wonderful episode on CRISPR, which is this tool that allows uh, scientists to go in and and literally cut out a particular part of the genetic code, and then and and then allow enzymes and things that are available to to put in you know different uh, DNA. Genomics and this ability to, you know, utilize biology and to modify biology. I mean, in this case, it's talking about storage. Uh, we're still today in 2017, a long way from being able to, you know, replicate the human brain and our capacity for, for memory storage. But you read articles like this and you're thinking, oh my goodness. And, you know, you continue to hear about quantum computers and, and computers. It's not just a one or a zero, but there's a, there's another, you know, possibility for it. And, you know, some of this stuff is sort of like multidimensional uh, mathematics. It's like, okay, how many people on the planet really understand this? You know, it's a few, a few people, but I think that's, that's pretty amazing. What, and let me ask you this, Miguel. What does local hard drive storage look like at your house? You know, are you, are you in the multi terabits? Uh, is everything in the cloud? What, what does that look like for you? Yeah, a long time ago, I decided I was going to save everything in the cloud. So, um, my, I, I rely on Google Drive and OneDrive, uh, and, uh, just sort of cycle information back and forth depending on, I have things scattered, uh, in those two places, um, Dropbox is pretty much throwaway um, stuff, but uh, the Google Drive is where I, I store most of my data. And of course, I have it backed up. Uh, probably have about three terabytes. That's it. Um, well, that's all. That's all. <laughs> and in 1992, we would have said, "What?" <laughs> yeah, that is definitely a, a lot. Well, Peggy so. said she'd never heard of petabytes. Um, Peggy, if you go into Wikipedia for whatever article has the, you know, megabytes, gigabytes, terabytes, there is a Yodabyte. And that my son's <laughs> almost Yoda. He like thinks that's so cool. You know, we're going to get to the Yodabyte. So the other article I want to mention uh, and just briefly talk about is the future of the Macintosh from Apple Insider on March the 5th. And this article has a fantastic graphic which takes us through the history of the Mac. And I guess basically, let me look at the, at the uh, legend here from data visualization. So from 1997, where we had 40% of Apple's income, the Power Macintosh, uh, you had another 40%, the iMac, and then the top 20%, the PowerBook, all the way up to 2016, where we've got, you know, something like 75% is iPhone, a very narrow band, maybe 10% is iPad, 10% is iMac, and then the other 10% may be services. And I don't know if that's adding up to 100, but you can look at the graphic. Um, I am encouraged. Of course, Apple has an upcoming event. I don't know that it's been finalized. It's probably been finalized by now. It's supposed to be this month in March. And we've heard Steve Jobs in earning reports and, you know, some, some, some talks that he's given recently, you know, encourage pro users that Apple's not going to abandon them. The thing that this article talks about is that there's a lot of wisdom to the product cycle of Apple. A lot of PC and other kinds of, of technology manufacturers will just kind of continually issue updates. And so the product line is always getting better, but there's a whole lot of choices. 
and Apple, of course, they're fairly fractured right now, but they will wait and, and have an upgrade cycle where there's a lot of pinup demand and, you know, they'll, they'll cycle that. And so what I'm actually most anxious for is to hope that the MacBook Air doesn't go away. Um, as a technology director, uh, we need to decide whether we're going to stick. I mean, we have, uh, vintage pre-retina, you know, 2012, MacBook Pros uh, in, in the hands of most of our faculty. And as we look at refreshing um, the Air, because it has the regular USB 2.0, 3.0 port, and it doesn't just have this USB-C thing that I'm using on this MacBook I've got. Got to be thinking about that kind of stuff. Um, what advice do you have for me, Miguel, as a technology director? As I think about the future of Apple and, and um, a, <coughs> pardon me, a group of educators that are pretty comfortable with their Macs at this point. So it'd be a substantial disruption if we did something else. I mean, we've, we've talked about Chromebooks. We've talked about, you know, if you wanted a Chromepad, Chromebook or, or iPad, but what, what thoughts do you have about the future of the Macintosh and also just about, you know, being in that kind of situation where I got to think for five years, you know, what device am I going to put in people's hands to hopefully remain relevant, fast and, and usable? Well, I think we need to keep these situations or, or these scenarios apart a little bit. Um, the first scenario, which is the important one, is you need, you need to drink some more of that root beer you got. <laughs> uh, one of the uh, uh, scenarios, I guess, for that one, you need, what you need to keep in mind is that you do not want to make that decision as the what's the device of choice. You want a committee of stakeholders uh, to do that. I'm sure you're already working on that. And uh, that should be something that comes about as uh, after long discussion and, and research. Um, but uh, if someone wants you to pull the trigger, avoid it as, uh, at all possible costs. Uh, the reason why is obviously you're going to be wrong no matter what you choose. The second uh, uh, scenario that you mentioned is, you know, what's my advice? Uh, my advice for, for staying flexible is in a school setting, Windows is going to be the preferred platform because it, it does allow people uh, a lot of control. And uh, even though we're moving to a lot more mobile, uh, where it almost doesn't matter because you can access everything in the cloud, uh, I would take a hard look at the uh, Surface Pro tablets. Um, they are a little pricey. But uh, if you don't like those, you can always uh, look at other um, uh, Windows 10 tablets that might be usable. And then, of course, uh, Google Chromebooks are coming out with styluses and uh, so that kids can take advantage of all the digital ink um, that's possible. So that really sort of gives a, an alternative to the Surface Pro tablet if you don't like that price point um, and the operating system. But uh, if I had to go out and uh, equip a school district tomorrow, I would uh, decide on what's going to be purchased by the district, and those would be the standard uh, spaces, those uh, that everyone has to use. Those would be Windows machines. And then I would uh, bring the campus together, including the leadership, and ask uh, what what best what technology best matches your your particular needs here at XYZ campus. And then they would make a decision based on their uh, campus instructional or campus improvement plan. And then uh, that then we would move uh, funding around to support them in that. Uh, that way we have a, a uniform base of technology and then we also have a um, that element of choice that's so important for our school community. Okay, there you go. Well, we are at the top of the hour and we do want to do some Geeks of the Week. So I will go first and then pass it off to you, Miguel. I'm going to put mine in. I didn't do mine early, but maybe everyone knows about this, but Pocket is like gold, right? And I have been using the Pocket app to actually read me articles when I'm in the car. So I, we do a lot of driving of our, of, well, particularly our middle child, our oldest daughter to dance practice about, you know, 20 minutes and three times a week and whatever. So that, that is a lot of time in the car. So it is an automated voice, but Originally, I was having to use a third-party app to do that that would go over to Pocket and pull it over, but now it's just built right in. So Pocket is great. You have an extension in Google Chrome. I'm sure it does in Firefox as well. 
when I find an article that I like, generally what I do now is um, I will uh, I'll read it. I will tweet it. If I don't have time to fully read it, I will save it into Pocket, and then I will also flip it into Flipboard. So I have an iReading magazine that I put pretty much all the technology-related education articles. And then if it has to do with digital security, or as Miguel said, surveillance state and privacy, um, I will flip it into those magazines as well. But Pocket, it is free, and it has a wonderful text-to-speech feature that, you know, Siri is even better on the iPhone, and, and I'm sure... Uh, Android is probably, you know, reasonably good in terms of the speaking voice. If you can deal with that computer voice, it's a lot better than it used to be in the nineties. If you were playing with text to speech at that time. So that is my geek of the week. How about you, Miguel? Uh, I just have to agree with you on pocket. Uh, what I've done is, uh, add if this, then that recipe so that anytime I heart something on Twitter, it goes straight into pocket and then gets retweeted. Um, so that way it, I know that it's going to come out, and uh, I also uh, drop stuff into to Flipboard the same way as you do. But I, I found myself trying to curate a lot of in several different places, and from now it's just it all goes into Pocket. It's all searchable and moving on. So uh, I don't know if y'all are aware, but uh, there. And unfortunately, I left it downstairs. But uh, on my, uh, I've been looking for uh, inexpensive. Um, microphone for my iPhone, and I didn't want to lock myself in. I wanted something that I could use on Android devices as well, or an iPad. And uh, the iRig Mic Cast costs thirty nine ninety nine, and it works incredibly well. I was just blown away this week. I used it at South by Southwest uh, Education, um, doing some of the interviews and. Uh, I had, you know, the two gentlemen from Brazil who, you know, are started their own company. They came over and they do, uh, they collect audio as well from from children and 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 teachers, and they wanted something that would do that. So they were they were excited about that, and I realized, you know, maybe people don't know about iRig. You can uh, uh, get the uh, Mikey, um, and uh, y'all have probably seen the Yeti and all that. Uh, so the Mikey is just a small version of that. It plugs into your lightning port. But what's nice about the iRig mic cast is it plugs into your old headphone jack. Now, of course, the reason it's probably $40 is that headphone jacks went away, but uh, that's on the iOS. But on Android, you could still use it. Uh, and, again, it works really, really well. And it comes with free software, too. Um, and I use it to record uh, some of the my interviews at South by Southwest. What's the one that plugs into the Lightning? Because there's another one. Uh, yeah, well, that uh, the iRig folks uh, have one that's like ninety nine dollars. Oh, Mike Field, yeah, iRig Mike Field. Exactly, the Mike Field. That one is uh, a little bit uh, more expensive, but it's it's uh, priced uh, at the same um, in the same ballpark as the Mikey M I K E Y. Um, I actually have a blog entry coming out sometime in the next month that has all these. I'll, I'll try to remember those. But uh, Jamie says in the chat she just bought an iRig for her iPad at school, and she is very happy with it as well. So yeah, you should. I mean, there it even has a like a little uh, handle, it's a little stick that you can use to hold things up and and do that. Um, but it just depends on your situation uh, if you need that or not. The other uh, uh, geek of the week is, uh, you know, so many people don't seem to know about Beautiful Audio Editor for Chrome. And it is a very nice audio editor. It reminds me of Audacity, as a matter of fact, or the Mina sound editor that was around for a little while before it disappeared. Beautiful Audio Editor works great in, in the Chrome browser. And when I first started looking at it, it, it was kind of buggy. It didn't quite work. I've tried it uh, in the last month, and it, it's just incredible. It's very nice. It saves directly to Google Drive. If you're in a Google Suites for education uh, environment, this is definitely a tool to an app to get on your Chromebooks um, because I think you, you'd have to pay for Twisted Wave, which is the other next best uh, audio editor, and uh, that costs lots of money. So uh, definitely beautiful audio editor. Had, had you heard of it, uh, Wes? Or played no, I wish I'd heard of it. I, I was at EdCamp OKC last weekend uh, talking to teachers in a multimedia classroom session, 
and wanting to, yeah, that would have been great to mention. There was one that was announced at ISTE last year that was an audio. It was one of the packages they came out with, and it's not oh, yeah. twisted, but it was something else. Sound, uh, sound booth or sound, sound something. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. It I saw it. it and I remember thinking, it's like, you know what? You people need to be talking about beautiful sound editor. So awesome. definitely give it. Yeah, definitely, definitely give that a shot. Um, the, uh, and I think that was it. Those were no, no, two geeks no, no. Were... You had digital media in the classroom. Oh, that was your book. That was the one you did. That was the book. I think I just threw it in there. Fantastic. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up. Uh, everyone, please check out all the links and we will be, uh, adding to that. Miguel is hopefully going to drop a few of the, the other things that we mentioned into the, the, uh, links that you'll find at edtechsr.com slash links. Generally, you can find us here on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, but we are having some modifications. Jason Neifer, and I neglected to say at the beginning of the show, is on assignment. Actually, there's some folks in the Montana legislature that are calling his name, and so it'll be exciting to have him check in. But we will not have a show next week. We'll be taking a break for spring break, but we will be back the third week. The week I think it's on Wednesday, March 23rd with Jen Carey, and we'll be back on the 29th with the wonderful Alice Barr and Cheryl Oaks, the seedlings who are dear friends from the state of Maine. So as we close, Miguel, where can people find you online and read more of your amazing and just inspirational, really, I would say life changing. It's not an exaggeration. Life changing ideas. Where can they find you at that? Yes. Uh, we go back to 2010. Yeah. The, the website looks terrible, but it's pithy. Um, the uh yeah you can find uh, at www.mguhlin.org um it's around the corner but i always like to you know use the subtitle moving at the speed of mediocrity you know where, that where, is the title where did around the corner come from miguel what's the origin of that <laughs> i don't know i just realized that i didn't want to be down in the m's or the g's and ah, so yes Around the corner, but it actually came from a Minion McLaughlin quote. Uh, you know, you was it uh, something about courage and going around the corner, even though you don't know what's around the corner, you still keep on going. And I think it tied into the time I was having a panic attack driving down the road, and I that's what I, when I decided I was going to blog because it was such a wonderful way to uh, deal with all the changes that were coming at me. Now we just tweet and it's over with, but. Uh, it's still a, it's kind still, of a nice. We're, but we get connected and the learning goes on. So Chris Miller said to your uh, uh, beautiful audio editor, it looks great, downloads and plugs in instantly. And Jamie Camp said, wow, thanks for that, Miguel. We were needing a good audio editor. Just had someone ask about that. Hooray. So lives have been changed right here on the EdTech situation. That's right. That's right. And I want to thank you, uh, uh, Wes and, and Jason, for having me on uh, to to discuss security and, and, and share all of this. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Because there's fun stuff to talk about, and there's also really, really serious stuff. Because the work we do as educators matters, right? We affect lives, not only... Um, you know, the lives of, of adults, the lives of, of children and students and folks that are going to be taking care of our nation and leading our nation. And it's really important that we, we talk about these issues and that we bring them to the forefront because if we don't, then who is going to do that? So I am Wes Fryer. You can find me on the Twitters at W Fryer, my blog speedofcreativity.org when it is not hacked by Russian hackers is accessible. And I will be posting a podcast before next week. In fact, that's going to be my my goal here um, tomorrow night or Thursday is to get on a podcast, which I've not in a while, but you can also um, link to my digital footprint by going to about.com. No, it's about.me, right? About.me slash W Fryer. So thank you all so much. Uh, we appreciate those that have joined us live in the chat room. Uh, Chris Miller, Peggy George, Jamie Camp. Um, we, we missed, uh, our, our Tegucigalpa Honduras, uh, live viewer, but we know that many of you are checking us out late, uh, on the audio version. So download 32 kilobit audio versions as well as a 360p video version or check us out on YouTube. You can find all those links on edtechsr.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Miguel. You look great in your picture with the tie and there he is live. So good night, everybody. Okay, thanks. And uh, if you take a picture, I'm ready now. You can just use the picture. Screenshot. Thanks. Right. Thanks, Wes. Bye.